Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 60, Gravity. This is part four of our five-part series on the hazards of human spaceflight. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information right here at NASA. So right now, we're teaming up with a human research program to bring you five of the biggest hazards that humans must endure when traveling the cosmos. Today, our focus is altered gravity fields with Dr. Peter Norsk, the senior research director and element scientist at Baylor College of Medicine based here at NASA. His research has focused on how the human cardiovascular system and sodium and fluid volume regulating mechanisms are affected by changes in gravity. Don't worry, we go over what all of that means uh, during today's podcast. He's been responsible for 10 in-flight experiments with astronauts on the shuttle and the Mir space station and the International Space Station. We'll hear, uh, oh, also hear clips with my conversation with Dr. Stan Love, NASA astronaut and honestly one of the smartest guys I've ever talked to. Love gave his insights and personal experiences with adjusting to and from microgravity. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Peter Norsk. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, this is an interesting topic because, of course, you think, you know, whenever we're traveling in space, yes, there's going to be changes to gravity, obviously. You know, you have the whole, like, zero-G, right? People floating. You see that in the movies all the time. Um, but what's different is how that impacts the human body, and it's pretty significant, right? So what are some of the... What are some of the main things that we can expect from these changes in gravity? What's like the bird's eye view? What happens to the human body whenever we're going from one place that has one gravity to another? Well, if you enter weightlessness right now, zero G, uh, you would uh, experience two things immediately. One would be a fluid shift of blood and fluid from the lower parts of the body into the upper parts because gravity is not dragging it towards your feet. Hmm. So you will have more fullness of fluid and blood in your head and in your heart. That's the first thing that happens within a few seconds. Hmm. And then your balance organ, uh, your inner ear organ that controls balance and perception of direction of gravity will be totally disturbed. And a few people actually get sick very quickly. Uh, many people, it, it takes a little while, but in a few minutes or maybe an hour, they'll be very sick. It's 75%. So those are the two, two acute effects of COG. In the inner ear, you have certain weight components, small, small crystals uh, that actually detect gravity and they are affected immediately. But what the eyes are seeing and what this balance organ, organ is sensing contradicts each other and that creates confusion in the brain. And that's what we call uh, space sickness or motion sickness. Speaking of space sickness and feeling queasy, I chatted with NASA astronaut Stan Love about this feeling since he experienced it himself. The next thing that happens is uh, your inner ears have little sensors in them that tell them which way down is, tell you which way down is. And you turn off the gravity and those sensors don't know what to do. And over millennia of evolution, your body has evolved the response. When I can't tell which way down is, I got to throw up. So sounds like a committee design. <laughs> Not sure why that makes sense. I've heard a just so story that there are, there are certain plants that if you eat them, you will die. 
Okay, they're plant poisons on Earth, and mm. many of those plants before they make you die, they make you dizzy. And so maybe there's an evolutionary advantage to throwing up when you don't know which way down it is. But the sad fact mm -hmm. of the matter is when people get to space, they feel queasy. Hmm. About a third of people feel so ill that they do throw up. About another third um, look kind of green and they keep their head rigidly in the same position and they don't want to be upside down in the cabin because the unfamiliar environment can be provocative. We say provocative means you throw up. Um, <laughs> and another third claim to feel nothing. <laughs> so um, that, however, um, your body gets used to. So the first couple of days in space, you'll see people tending to be rigidly up and down in the cabin, not moving their head around a lot, maybe looking a little green and maybe heading off to the back part of the cabin with an emesis bag, emesis throw up. We got a lot of nice words for throwing up, so it doesn't sound so bad. Um, and, but after a couple of days, that gets better. So after three, four days in space, then people are doing somersaults in the cabin and having a great old time. And that's all perfect until you land. And then the gravity turns back on <laughs> and <laughs> your middle ear says, oh, I know which way down is. And you feel queasy again. But if it, after a few days, you feel better. They actually, uh, after a shuttle flight, they would not let us drive our cars for three days after landing because your vestibular system, that's what they call your, your sense of balance, uh, is still scrambled. And uh, even walking around a corner in the office kind of spins your gyro and you feel dizzy. It's, it's, I am told that's how you feel if you drink six beers. I have no experience with that myself, of course. <laughs> but it's sort of the six beer spins on landing day. Okay. Okay, yeah. I definitely get terrible motion sickness myself, so I can't You may imagine. not get space sick. You may get motion sick <laughs> in a car. Or uh -huh. in a, so there's a difference. There's a difference. And uh, the, uh, we, we don't really know why. Oh, Okay. So the fluid thing, that makes a little bit of sense, right? Because we're here on Earth with one G, and right. our feet are down closer to the ground and have to maybe pump a little bit stronger to get towards the head because you got that whole gravity thing right. pushing down on you, and we're beings that stand erect. You know, we stand we stand upright. Is that is that part of the reason why they're experiencing that is because that gravity isn't there anymore? Yes. Okay. It, it's simply if you have a tube with fluid, uh, the pressure at the bottom would be higher than at the top for the reason that fluid contains weight. Mm -hmm. And that is suddenly weightless. That means that uh, you suddenly will have an increased pressure in the top of the tube and a lower pressure in the bottom of the tube because you don't have this gravity effect on the fluid column. Mm -hmm. That happens in the body as well. So you have more fullness in the head and uh, it's immediate and it, long it lasts all throughout the mission uh, even for months. And that is one of our great concerns. What does that feel like whenever you have more fluid? Do, do your, does your head feel kind of puffy? Or do your feet feel sort of shriveled? I don't, I don't know how that You don't feel, feel anything, actually, but you look a little bit different. Really? Uh, a little more redness in the head, uh, more fullness around. Your face changes its shape a little bit. Mm. Uh, but some people complain of fullness in the head, uh, in particular during longer missions. But it's not a, it's not a big concern uh, from a uh, personal subjective point of view it's more of concern on a longer term uh, in, including effects on the eye and sight and vision because some astronauts do have vision changes in flight and they do have certain changes of clinical concern in the eyes that if you look into the eyes with certain equipment you will see changes that mimic certain diseases so we are concerned about the fluid shift but it's not a personal concern 
until you've been to space for several months. Which is, I mean, what we're planning for, right? If you're exactly. talking about missions to long duration missions to, you know, stay on the moon, long right. duration missions right. to stay on Mars. These are especially Mars. Mars is a several year long motion profile. That's yeah. that's very significant. Right. Um, so, I guess we'll kind of start with that. You know, you're you're talking about uh, it. Ta it takes some time. Uh, un until really they are measurable kind of that you can really notice the effects and you know it, it doesn't you can't really notice it like you're saying day to day but it's that constant exposure to microgravity that is and the constant exposure to these fluid shifts that may be may be the cause so let's let's start with vision you're talking about vision these vision changes is it what's 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 happening there what's happening to an astronaut's eyes when um because of gravity? Well, you have the fluid shift, and we think that during a long-duration spaceflight, this fluid shift affects vision. It takes time hmm. because it creates kind of edema, or uh, that means edema means uh, exudation of fluid from the bloodstream into the tissues, and that goes more slowly. But if you have an increased pressure in the blood vessels, in the brain and in the eyes, you can imagine that there might be more of exudation, more of transfer of fluid, from the intervascular bed, I mean from the bloodstream, into the tissues. That's called edema. Hmm. And the more fluid you accumulate in the tissues over time, the more concern we have. And that is actually our main hypothesis right now because uh. we don't know for sure, but we're investing millions of dollars into finding out because it could be a showstopper for long-duration missions if we don't clarify what the reasons are for those particular issues. So that is what we call the SANS. We have, you know, we have acronyms for everything. <laughs> yes, we do. So it's an acronym language. And SANS means it's spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome and we are mostly concerned about that. It's one of the highest profiled risk at NASA right now. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. It's acute for the fluid shift, but it takes time to develop the vision changes. And the longer you are in space, the more we are concerned. Mm -hmm. In particular, we are concerned on top of that, if you uh, expose the astronauts to deep space radiation that may actually exacerbate this effect. So we are concerned about that and we don't have a solution as of now, but we're looking into certain hypotheses and certain specific equipment. You know, that's right. We talked um, in a previous, this is the, one of the five hazards, right, that we're, that we're doing right now. This is right. the altered gravity. Right. We had a previous conversation with Tom uh, Williams, who uh, mentioned, you know, he was talking about the isolation aspect, but one of the major things that he, he kind of honed in on was the fact that it's, you're not just isolated to that one study, you know, that these are connected. If you're talking about gravity, yes, gravity has certain effects on the body, but you can't just look at just the altered gravity. You're looking at the gravity and then how radiation is impacting the effects that gravity are causing. So there is, there is that concern, especially I'm thinking for transit. When you're in transit from Earth to Mars, let's say, now you're in this uh, higher radiation environment. What do we know how, 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 um, radiation is amplifying this. Yeah, we know very little because it's very difficult to simulate exactly uh, the deep space radiation mm. on Earth. We can do some simulations, some right. similarities, but not the same thing. And uh, a low dose deep space uh, radiation is different from anything we can do on Earth. So we don't really know. But we are doing animal experiments where the animals are exposed to radiation and simulate the microgravity. But again, everything is simulated. Mm -hmm. So if you go, when you go into space, it's probably different. So that is uh, some kind of knowledge we need and something that is of very high priority. But before, you know, 
the concerns of microgravities, you have the fluid shift, as I mentioned, the, this, uh, this uh, motion sickness, which mm -hmm. goes away actually after a few days. So it's not ah. of a big concern, but when you change gravity fields like landing on Mars, it reappears. So that is the concern is, is, yes. the, is, is the alternation of gravity and the immediate effects we are concerned about. But then also you have immune effects, you, you attenuate the immune system, you see viral reactivation in astronauts, maybe because of stress as well. Huh. You see changes also at the cellular level uh, of microgravity per se, which is very unexpected because these small fluid-filled uh, 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 membranous uh, uh, structures called cells are actually affected by microgravity as well to a degree with that could be of concern during long-duration spaceflight. And then finally, of course, on muscle and bone, you have deloading effects, whereby you, which can be mitigated by extensive exercise. But these are the major concerns, but everything is exacerbated and exaggerated by deep space radiation. Mm -hmm. Is On top of that, you have isolation and uh, confinement, as indicated by uh, Dr. Williams. Right. So we are working, Dr. Williams and I, together more and more, uh, much more than previously, in order to try to find common pathways to mitigate those issues. Yeah, I think the b the bone and muscle loss is a really good one to hit on because, um, you know, we, we have those uh, countermeasures is what we call them, right? Ways to counteract uh, the effects, which is, you know, your your body is in microgravity. And you, I don't know why I'm explaining this. You should be explaining it. No, it's correct. You're doing very well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, because you're not, basically, you're not using it. So your body's like, well, I don't really need to put the energy right. towards that. So um, you start to lose muscle and bone mass. And that's why they exercise a lot, especially the resistive, is right. to maintain that. Yeah. But who knows what radiation is going to do? How much more right. uh, can we expect that you're going to have these bone and muscle loss we, because we, of radiation? We do know something from uh, simulated uh, animal studies in rats in particular and mice. Hmm. And there are exaggerated effects. We actually have an idea about it also. Oh, really? But we, of course, don't know that deep space will be different. But right. but according to that, you, you you exaggerate the effects and you should be, we should be concerned about it. Now, the good news is that I just listening uh, on a presentation, I think a few weeks ago, by Dr. Globus from Ames Research Center, and she indicated that actually exercise would be efficient in mitigating also the radiation effects on the deloading of muscle and bone. So exercise per se may actually be the solution, but, but what happens if the exercise device breaks down, oh, then yeah. we need alternatives, and that's the challenge right now. Right. And also it's a challenge to develop and exercise equipment in that small confined environment of the habitat, as well as Orion, that I think, you know, the transit uh, vehicle to Mars, mm -hmm. uh, that is as, as efficient as the big gym <laughs> we have on ISS right now. Yeah. And that is a challenge. So right. we have some challenges of a technical nature, but I think we can solve the muscle and skeletal unloading effect. I'm concerned about the uh, flu shift effects and the eye and effects on the brain. Hmm. So, so the, is the conclusion is that um, you know exercise does help and will help on on that transit. We should continue to look forward to exercise. You know, it turns it turns out exercise, uh, healthy food, uh, being slim, all these uh, perfect <laughs> healthy that that's good even in space. Really? And it turns out also to have mitigating effects against radiation. So. Yes, you just have, well, just, just, you have to be healthy and do right. the right things, yes. but that's why we select astronauts the rigorous uh, way we do it and uh, obtain the right people. But, uh, right. Uh, but on top of that, we need to do something, yes. That's right. They're the best of the best. You wouldn't have to, 
I mean, would would you have to kind of the, right now on the space station they have a sort of a two and a half hour slot where they have dedicated to right. uh, exercise? Would you probably increase that just to be safe, or or would you That'd, stick to two and a half hours? Uh, if it were up to me, I would keep that, but I would do the right uh, prescription for exercise. It's, hmm. the, it's not just doing exercise. It's not just telling you to do exercise. It's also the kind of exercise, aerobic exercise, uh, resistance exercise in the right combination. Mm-hmm. We have actually tested that with something called the SPRINT protocol by Dr. Lloyd Plaus Snyder, mm-hmm. who was the PI or is the PI of that study. It's just about being published. It's been tested on ISS. We've done it during uh, bed rest for two weeks and 70 days, and it turns out that that prescription is pretty efficient, and it actually takes less time than the usual exercise being done on the ISS. So that's an efficient way of doing it. So I'm not concerned about the time or the duration of exercise every day. Uh. more concerned about uh, astronauts doing the right combination of different types of exercise. And But the challenge is still uh, development of the equipment to do that and to combine the right prescription with that uh, small exercise equipment in, in a very confined environment. Who knew working out was so important? I think we find ourselves sometimes coming up with excuses and blowing off exercise. But you can't really do that in space, though Stan Love did, and here's what happened. So as a shuttle crew member, um, I had a few exercise sessions scheduled for me during the flight. We had a little bicycle ergometer, they call it, measures how much energy you're putting out in the bicycle. So you get on the bicycle and you do a couple turns on the bike, um, and they give you half an hour for that, and I just blew it off. I didn't do my exercise. I said, uh, I'm up here for two weeks. I'm not going to die for lack of exercise in two weeks, um, and I have a pile of work to do, and this exercise is not helping me do it. So I just blew off all my exercise. Uh, I do not recommend this for any space flyers. I got back. I had lost eight pounds, and I'm a very skinny guy to begin with. It all came off my legs, and it took me two months to get my weight and strength back after just two weeks in space not exercising. Right. Yeah. To talk talk about constraints, you know, yes. having to you have to work out more and harder because that's what sprint is, right? It's a it's more of a high intensity exercise. High intensity profile. Exercise, aerobic exercise as well as a resistive exercise, and but resistive. it doesn't have to take such a long time. It's just right. do it regularly uh, every day, six days a week, and then also do it in, in the right fashion. All right. Yes. See, this is why we pick the best of the best because they have to be dedicated to that schedule, and I know I'd be exhausted after day three. Well, we still have with the best of the best uh, a challenge to persuade people to do the right exercise. <laughs> at the right time and actually with you uh, yeah but but they're doing it I'm, I'm not right. saying that right uh, uh, it's just they also need to know it and and uh, so we are defining that prescription and then you can deviate from it but then you know what to do and you also know what the implications are when you deviate if you have the mm-hmm. kind of a basic exercise you can deviate it to one side or the other do less of that more of that but we'll know what that means and mm-hmm. uh, so that that thing, that's the important thing but we have developed that prescription and that's why uh, the exercise physiology per say is not the biggest challenge right now the biggest challenge are the other things we talked about before right okay so let's go let's go back to it we we hit right. a little bit on fluid shifts but uh, one yep. thing that we didn't really hit on was the the whole balance thing right. so what's happening there you know you're launching from from space and you go into space what is it 8 12 minutes later depending on your launch vehicle um, and then you're exposed to microgravity then is is 
at what point are you really starting to feel the effects of where am I, you know, with the, with the loss of uh, balance Well, immediately, it, you, immediately. 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 Even during parabolic flights, people get very confused. And oh, really? uh, uh, they, uh, they actually vomit and uh, feel pretty bad, many people. So uh, actually, most I think almost everyone during parabolic flight takes medication against those uh, issues. So, hmm. so it's immediate. And, uh, but you adapt pretty fast, uh, but the problem is that you have to prepare the astronauts. Well, it takes about six weeks from a sensory motor, nervous stable point of view to adapt to spaceflight in movement and uh, adapting in behavior and not hitting things and being efficient in floating through one module to the other and then turn to the left and right and get up and down. I mean, that takes about six weeks, uh, according to at least the several astronauts that have uh, experiences. So ah. it's about a six week adaptation, but it only takes about three, four, five days to adapt not to being sick. So so th that's uh, these are the good news, but it takes some time. Yeah. But then again, when you land on a planet, it, it being moon, Mars or Earth, right. you readapt and you have the issues immediately. When astronauts come back from six months of flight uh, in Kazakhstan, they, they, their balance is, is totally disrupted. They can't walk straight. They have to be supported. Uh, they are not may not be sick. Some may be sick. Uh, some do much better than others, but they all are confused and uh, kind of hit things or fall over. And that is of concern when you land on Mars without any reception committee, and you really don't know, or we have defined a certain temporal profile, but you really don't know how long it will take for them to being able to do the first extra vehicular activity from the landing module, for example, to the habitats. And that is a very important piece of information to know that. So we have tried to define that when landing on Earth, but on Mars we don't know because we, uh, on Mars you have only 38% uh, of the Earth's gravity, so mm -hmm. that hasn't been done. <laughs> so whatever you do, whenever you're designing a a profile for a mission to Mars, you sort of have to build in this sort of period, say the astronauts land successfully on Mars, there's got to be this, at least on what we know right now, kind of a buffer time, but, but before they can actually start doing anything, right? It takes because a, they uh, have to adjust. And of course, well, it takes six days full, fully to adjust to the pre-flight level, but I think I, within two or three days, you'll be able to do an EVA, I think. Really? But, but, but actually, also, you can mitigate it. We have ideas as how to prepare the astronauts to be in a better shape from a sensory motor and nerve stable point of view when they land on Mars. That is actually to do what we call pre-flight adaptability training, that is, we disturb the, dis the, the nervous stabilizer system and the balance system before flight in a certain fashion on a balancing platform and uh, we disturb them visually. And when you do that repeatedly, they adapt to a new environment and they are much, better, much more resistant to changes in gravity. That's one thing. And it lasts mm. more than six months. So, wow. Well, that is what we are testing right now, but we have indications that's the case. It's a six-month pre-flight disturbance thing? Or, or no, is it uh, it uh, you know, you have a six-month flight on ISS flight, or a six-month transit flight to Mars. It's about okay. six months. Okay. So you can actually, by prior to flight, adapt the astronauts and keep that adaptation uh, for the six months it takes to get to Mars and then still months. have effect, positive uh -huh. effects that mitigate. Uh, they would be less confused when they land, even based on this training uh, on a balance plate six months before that. That's one thing. But then also we have an idea as during the flight, uh, exercise actually also keeps them more uh, healthy in a balance 
for doing uh, for to, for not being too disturbed oh, really? when they land. Aerobic or, resist or resistive or both? But it has to be treadmill, uh, treadmill. Bump, bumping exercise, and that's ah. difficult to do in a small vehicle. So that's a challenge. And I then see. also we we have an idea of using a balance plate. Uh, that's a certain plate whereby you buy straps are pushed against it with your feet, and then you have to do certain things in order not to deviate to one side or the other, and that will keep your balance system well uh, exercised before you land on Mars. And that is one way we could mitigate those effects. It hasn't been tested yet in space. It's still a hypothesis, but we think based on what we know that that might be a way to do it. So for how long are you doing all of these sort of disturbing exercises? To sort well, of pre-flight will be maybe five to six to ten times in, in, in each astronaut, and they'll be oh. pretty well prepared. During flight, it has to be regularly on a daily basis, like exercise. Oh. But, you know, treadmill exercise, if we could do it, I don't know whether we can do it. <laughs> but on ISS, we, uh, they do treadmill exercise every day. And it's just doing the treadmill exercise with a certain speed and so on. So that's fine. But hmm. on to, if you cannot do treadmill exercise, we probably would have to find out how to do stimulation in a similar fashion, but in a much more simpler way on uh, their way to Mars. Yeah, just like you're exercising your muscles to yes, sort it's of... Yes, it's same thing. Same. You're it'll exercising be, your balance. It'll be built in, in the exercise equipment, yes. Okay. So the, these are ideas. Now, you could also argue we don't need to do anything because just... After landing, wait until they're ready, and then do the EVA. That's that's one easy solution. I would say I think they should more be more well adapted because you never know what happens an emergency. You right. they may have to get out of the vehicle immediately. Uh, it would be a good thing at least to do as much as we can with exercise equipment in flight as well as pre-flight adaptability training. That's right. Because if you're if you're landing on Mars now, if if you are building in sort of a buffer time without right. any of this this conditioning, now you have to think about your systems. Yes. Because your systems have to support have to have life support for those few days. Yes. Exactly. Have, have enough food. Then your that's weight. But yeah. we are working very, very closely with the operations people who are now also very concerned about this issue. Oh, really? So we are trying to, in an operational fashion, to find out the best way to mitigate the sensory motor disturbances after landing on Mars, yes. That's right, because... Even, even coming back to Earth, you know, if we... Let's anticipate we are not landing on Mars for 20 years. We actually don't know when that will happen, but it'll probably be in 20 years. Okay. So you'll be young at the time. I will be uh, maybe gone or very old. <laughs> but it will happen maybe in 20 years. And... So before that, we, we don't have the concern right now, but the concern is, of course, when they land in water on Earth with the new launching systems of a commercial character that will have more ready next year, into next year. Mm -hmm. There will be launches from U U.S. soil, by the way. That's very, right. That's fantastic, right? Yes. There will be a flagship. So we'll have two or di two different competing uh, SpaceX and Boeing companies taking care of that. But they will land in water in one instance with SpaceX. Right. And that is of concern that you are so uh, uh, you are so disturbed balance-wise that could can you get out of the vehicle? Uh, what if there's an emergency? You are on water. You get seasick on top of that. Oh so yeah. we probably have to mitigate that efficiently before and during flight. And we are working closely with operations to do that. That's right, because so Apollo, the Apollo capsule landed in the water. A lot of the Gemini capsule, you know, all these all these different right. uh, early human spaceflight program right. capsules landed in the water, but those were short duration short duration missions. Yes, and that's a big difference. Yeah, and but they were disturbed anyway, and right. uh, you would still get <laughs> so. so but, uh, but you know, they succeeded, but you you never know what your longer duration missions have what that means. Right. Yeah. That's that's really a one of the main concerns when we're when we're talking about this this topic of altered gravity. It's not so much 
the change, maybe with the balance thing, because that's such an immediate effect, but it's really these long-term things. Yes, the long-term things. And it turns out when you look into different physiological systems, you know, we had an idea from the shuttle days, even before that, there will be some kind of disturbance in an adaptation phase, and within one or two weeks, you'll be adapted with all the systems, you know. That is Mm. not true. Because when oh. you look into six months of adaptation, it changes all the time for many systems. So the old-fashioned view that this would just be a small short-term problem, that is not true. And we do not still have all of the knowledge to understand how the body adapts to six months of flight even. Now, we are actually planning and hoping that we can do longer missions, at least from the human research program uh, point of view, because we need to know uh, adaptation over one year at least, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully three years, but <laughs> it's difficult to do these long <laughs> missions in low Earth orbit. Ooh, as well, and then also see the temporal profile. When do you actually adapt and when, when, when do we know that you are in a stable phase? We don't know that. Mm. And it actually changes all the time when I look into specific systems. Right. So that's one concern. But the main concern is still, you know, we can mitigate most of the negative effects of spaceflight and unloading on body with, with, with exercise and after landing, we haven't talked about autostatic intolerance at the fall, the decrease in blood pressure when you are exposed to a gravitational field after being in microgravity. You faint, but we have a garment for that, and you drink and take salt tablets. So that seems to be the solution. So we are not so much concerned about these issues anymore. We are concerned about what we talked about, the vision changes, the immune changes, um, as well as as well as well whether we can have the right food items on board and they can be maintained stable during a three-year flight back and forth to Mars. That's right. That's and forth and back to those, Mars. Those humans are pretty picky and need food all the time. So yes. you gotta build that into a program. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that, that was actually interesting, um, th- uh, that piece of information. You said we've, we've already figured it out, but there's this change whenever we come back to gravity that uh, you're, something's happening with your blood pressure. What's, so what, what's happening and what are we doing now to, uh, to successfully mitigate it? Yeah, that's one of my, my before I came to NASA, I was uh, as a researcher for cardio, uh, within the cardiovascular field. So that's one of my favorite topics, but ah. uh, it's something that we are not that concerned about from a health perspective. But what happens is that when you enter microgravity and you stay in microgravity, all of your blood pres- pressure reflexes are kind of slowed down. They are not really being stimulated the same way as when you have posture changes on the ground all the time. Mm. In order, you can sit upright right now without fainting because your blood pressure reflexes uh, are efficient. And uh, so your, your vessels are kind of vasoconstricted in the lower part of the body. Your heart beats a little faster than if when you're supine. That keeps you up. That keeps you away from fainting. Now, when you are in microgravity, these reflexes are attenuated. And uh, so when you land on Mars, your vasoconstrictor reflex in the lower part of the body as well is not as efficient. You mm-hmm. have also a lower blood volume and plasma volume, and that may also exacerbate uh, the negative effects. So you, you have a tendency of fainting, or you may actually faint very easily, depending on it's very individual, mm-hmm. based on how attenuated all these reflexes are. Now, by using a garment in the lower part of the body that prevents the fluid and blood from uh, running, da- uh, from being pulled downwards uh, by gravity, you can mitigate it as well as having the astronauts drink water and take salt tablets in order to expand the uh, blood volume before landing. So that's pretty efficient, actually. Wow. Uh, so that is what we will do when they land on Mars and also landing on Earth. We do that all the time. So that's efficient. Even though the we still see some issues is a smaller thing right now. So that that's what they will do. Now we are more concerned about the on top of that of the sensory motor disturbance we talked about. Right. And and uh, 
uh, how long that would take for them to adapt. Yeah, it's this compounding effect. You it's know, a compounding effect. Yeah, everything exactly. sort exactly. of Yeah, together. everything goes together. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why we have a much more multidisciplinary uh, point of approach uh, for developing countermeasures now than we did just a few years ago. Right. Yeah, and you know, like we're we're talking about this this theme of bringing everything sort of together and, yeah. and realizing that there you can't just focus on gravity. You got to focus on all these different things working together. Right. Because that's right. That's what that's the environment. That's what's exactly. going to happen. So, so I would say that I think we can actually tomorrow we would from a health perspective probably be able to go to Mars and back again. What we don't know is that on top, you know, the deep space radiation on top of everything you know about microgravity. Yeah. I am concerned what we are doing to the astronauts when they come back and for their health in general. So that is a problem. They might be able to do it, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm concerned about the health perspective beyond that and also performance decrements in flight that we don't know anything about. Right. The, the sort of, you know, it, let's just say it's a three-year mission profile to Mars, you know, hang out on Mars, come back after that. You know, the long term, what we happens to you for the rest of your life. And that is something we're also concerned about, yes. Yeah. Also from a physiological health perspective, yes. I'm definitely. guessing that's why you want the three-year mission, huh? Yeah, we <laughs> would definitely like to have as long mission. But well, right now we can do six months missions. Six and months, we yeah. may, you know, that we just completed with uh, Scott Kelly. That's right. Uh, uh, one-year mission, and that was very uh, valuable. But we need to repeat it in order to obtain the correct statistics for understanding what's going on with the human body for such a long duration. Yeah, sample size of two can only get you so far, right? Him right, and, exactly. And yeah, yeah. yeah uh, the Russian cosmonaut Konyenko right. was also one year in space, yes. Yes, yes. Um, so that was, you know, we're looking at ex- long-term exposure to, to microgravity. I kind of wanted to talk about for a little bit just what we know so far about uh, the moon because we're talking about uh, going back to the moon again except maybe you know longer missions than we have seen in the past but on the Apollo mission especially let's focus on that uh, that component of balance uh, going from microgravity uh, on a a transit to the moon and then 16g so what do we know about just either through data or anecdotally uh, what do we know about that transition from to, to the moon gravity? Very little. Uh, so what we've been doing is transition from 1G to CRG and CRG to 1G. Right. And we've been uh, concerned about the immediate uh, sensory motor balance effects after landing in Kazakhstan. So that's what we've been measuring and having a temporal profile. We can deduct something, of course, to lower gravity, but 1.6 gravity, we know very little. We, we know that when they landed on the moon, they moved in a special fashion by kind of uh, jumping instead of walking. Mm-hmm. But it may be actually that the stiffness of the suit at that time was actually the main reason for doing that. It's not just the low gravity. But they, they did very well, actually, uh, you know, with very little preparation because you cannot really simulate this. Right. You can simulate underwater by having certain kind of oh, uh, weight, counterweights, uh, so that you d- don't float in the water, but you can simulate underwater uh, these effects of low gravity. You can do bed rest and things, but you can't really do it the correct way. So mm. uh, it is something that we don't know very anything about. Now, do you have a mitigating effect of that one-six gravity on the sensory motor system that actually might, ca- you know, be something whereby the astronauts? Uh, uh, less, we may not be that concerned about sensory motor disturbances because that low gravity might be enough. We don't know. Mm-hmm. We don't know the threshold for when you adapt uh, completely to uh, a gravitational field. We don't have the dose-response curve. 
Okay, one last cut in from Dr. Love since we're talking about the moon. He shared an anecdote from John Young, who's been in three gravity fields and explores the unknown of working out on the moon. Um, although I have it firsthand from John Young, who was one of our moon astronauts and uh, was here at the office when I came in, that of the three gravitational fields that he experienced, 1G on the Earth, 0G in space, and 1-6G on the moon, the moon's 1-6th gravity was the best. <laughs> um, so it's enough that the, the food stays on the plate and the poop stays in the toilet, <laughs> but you can move around much more freely. You, you're, you know, you're incredibly strong compared to your body weight from what you're used to on Earth. So he really liked 1-6G yet. Uh, and nobody knows what 1-3G is like except from our uh, reduced gravity aircraft research program. I've been on a few 1-3G flights, and to, to my feeling in the aircraft, it felt a lot like the 1-6G in the moon. Hmm. Your body feels really floaty. You feel just immensely strong. You can jump high. Um, <laughs> But it's going to be enough that uh, the basics of life are going to be familiar to you. You could pour liquid from a pitcher into a glass, for instance. You can't do that in microgravity. So those are sort of the, the G fields we're going to be in. And we, again, we have almost no experience in the intermediate gravity regime. Tons of experience on the Earth, quite a lot of experience now in weightlessness on the ISS. And we do a lot of research there on people and things. So we know how things behave in zero G. Um, the moon, we got a tiny bit. And Mars, it's all guesswork right now. So you can, I guess you can guess that, I mean, the, the fact that you're losing muscle and bone is because you're not really applying a lot of force. If you're not applying force, your, your muscles, like you said, they realize, oh, I'm not using this. I can put my energy elsewhere. So that's where you start losing that. But you have to kind of simulate it with, with exercise. So you're still applying force on, on the, um, the moon and Mars. You're still walking. You're still sitting. And you still can pour, like, uh, water into a glass. But it's not as much. So maybe you need it but just not as much. Yeah, and we don't know. So we, we have a know. lot of data at 1G, a little bit at 0G, and almost none in between. Right. Um, at one point, we were going to have a big centrifuge on the space station uh. where we could study variable gravity and understand how uh, bodies react. Of course, it wouldn't be people, but it would be mice and other animals that we can experiment with and, and learn how bodies react under partial gravity. Hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that fell victim to budget cuts, so we're going to have to find out the hard way. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> now, now, the body is, is one thing that has to deal with all of these different gravity fields, but you're, you have to kind of design equipment that's going to do, like you, you already hinted at the water recycling system where, you know, calcium was introduced and oh we figured out the hard way that we should probably have to learn how to deal with that but there are is there certain measures when it comes to microgravity certain ways to design technology that maybe we are learning or we can apply to deep space missions or to lunar or mars vicinity too so most of our equipment that we have on the space station um works in 1g and also works in 0g oh. um so for a computer for instance doesn't really care where the gravity is. The printer cares because it has to manage the paper and it's used to having the gravity pulling the paper down the paper tray. Now there's no gravity pulling the paper down the paper tray, you gotta put a little spring or something under there. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the changes in most of the equipment uh, on board a space station or spacecraft doesn't have, there don't have to be big changes to go from our 1G uh, standard environment to our 0G or partial G environment uh, with the exception of things that handle liquids. So unfortunately, that means my water supply, that means my toilet, 
you know, I already joked about, you know, the poop stain in the toilet. Yeah. Doesn't always happen in oh. zero G. And then you make sure you have gloves and a lot of extra wipes handy just in case something comes back out of that toilet. <laughs> Things coming out of the toilet is a rare and unusual experience on earth. And, you know, you're, you're going to hear about that from your coworkers the next day. If, hey, you know, my toilet backed up last night. Um, happens more often in microgravity because you don't have gravity helping there. So fluid handling systems do have to be specially designed. Um, separating air from water is tough in microgravity. Um, hmm. Equipment that handles that, it has poetic names like slurker, slurper bars. <laughs> <laughs> so we have slurper bars in the uh, humidity removal system on the space station. Hmm. Um, you have a cold plate, the air goes by it, the excess humidity condenses out on that slurper bar and then little holes in, in the slurper bar collect the water with, uh, with surface tension hmm. because gravity flow doesn't work. Um, but if a system is not having to handle fluids and in particular separation of gases from fluids, whatever works on the earth works pretty well in space. Um, and then when you turn on partial gravity, the fluid problem gets easier. In fact, it gets easier enough that there are people who are advocating uh, when we go to Mars and we might be six, eight, nine months in transit in microgravity, which is complicated and difficult. Our station crews are spending that long on space stations, so we're getting experience with it, but it's still hard on the body. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're going to Mars, you probably want to come back and so you gotta go do it again. Yeah. Um, they are discussing spinning the ship for uh, rotational gravity using uh, the centrifugal force. A disclaimer for physicists out there, yes, I know there's no such thing as centrifugal force, but we're gonna call it that because it's easy to explain. And if you do your math, assuming it, you'll never be wrong. Um, so the, that centrifugal force forcing things to the outer, outer part of a spinning object um, can fake gravity. And then your fluid handling gets easy and the poop stays in the toilet and your body stays strong and that's all good, except if you're spinning fast, you're gonna be ill all the time. They've done experiments in rotating rooms with people. Uh, and if the spin rate is about more than one revolution per minute, so sit in your chair and take 60 seconds to spin around, okay? Yeah. That speed is okay, faster than that, there are people who will never get used to it. Wow. Uh, and also when you pour something in uh, rotational gravity, the stream of liquid curves <laughs> in a way that you're not quite expecting. But if you want one G or close to one G and you want a spin rate of less than one rev per minute and you figure out how long your lever arm has to be to put something at the end of it and give it one G when you're only spinning it once a minute, it's the size of a football stadium. Uh -huh. So your crew capsule can be pretty small and you can have a hundred meters or so of cable and then a heavy object on the other end. Mm -hmm. So you could do it with cables instead of solid structures that would save you a lot of mass. Yeah. But now you're talking about something that's really big and unwieldy and you probably can't launch it spinning. Right. If you build it in space, you can't build it spinning because then every time you drop a wrench off it goes, right? Uh, so you'd yeah. have to build it in zero G and then spin it up. Hmm. That's gonna be complicated, especially if it's a non-rigid cable. And then once you're flying in space, if you decide you wanna turn, spinning things resist being turned. That's why a gyroscope works. Uh, so turning your spacecraft and then probably de-spinning it because you have to separate an object to go land on moon or Mars, it gets very complicated. And so far, um, there are two camps. We must spin the ship, we must not spin the ship. And they've been going at it and we have not had any conclusive result as to which is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds, there's problems with both, right? If you spin the ship, now you got gravity, but it's going to be pretty darn hard to control, yeah. build, If you don't everything. have gravity, you got exercise problems and fluid handling problems. Yes. And there is, as yet, no winner. <laughs>
That was a fun conversation with Dr. Love. I know we kind of went all over the place, though, so let's get back to Dr. Norsk and our discussion on parabolic flight and simulated ultra-gravity on Earth. Right. You don't know if it's going to be... Right. You know, you have these fluid shifts in microgravity, but would you have... You know, yeah. would you still have some sort of fluid shift, even with a tiny right. bit of gravity, or would that be enough to, yeah. to keep you kind of healthy? But now you ask, you know, it's very interesting. We are actually, right now, we completed, I think, one or two weeks ago, no, two, three weeks ago, I think, we completed a study where we tried to simulate effects of lunar gravity, Martian gravity, and creating a dose-response curve between gravity and effects on fluid shift. Hmm. And we did that during parabolic flight, but you only have 20 seconds of uh, either COG or lunar gravity or Martian gravity uh, to do that study. So, so right. these are very, very short term, but you can see flu shift acutely. It happens mm. within a few seconds. And I haven't seen any data from that study yet because it was completed a few weeks ago. Right. It's very complicated. Airplane has to fly in certain trajectories to create these Martian, lunar, uh, even... 1G is easy, it's just f flying straight and level. Right. But also we did three quarters of, uh, so we actually did 0.25, 0.5, and 0.75 uh, Gs in order Ooh. to simulate and uh, create a dose response curve. And then you can deduct what the lunar and Martian gravities are. And uh, that study is very important for, for seeing how much of a flu shift do you have because then later, if you can mitigate the vision changes we see in flight induced by the flu shift by shifting by lower body negative pressure, we would know how much we should apply in order to have an effect, and we would know whether the Moon and Mars gravity are protective against it. Ah. And we don't know that yet, <laughs> but the data is coming out right now. That would be a pretty fun flight to do some research on. So not a fun flight for, for commuting or, or to actually travel somewhere, but the plane, the plane is sort of, if you're imagining like a sine wave, it just yes. sort of goes up and down it, and up and right. down. It, 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 yes, exactly. Yeah, and at the, that at the peak sort of of those sine waves, that yeah, depends on the angle that you do. Symmetrically, uh, uh, around the top of that trajectory, you are weightless. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, So yeah. You, you have the correct understanding. Many people think this is kind of when it goes down or it doesn't understand. But actually, it's symmetrically around the top because it follows exactly the trajectory when you throw something, except as it counteracts the air friction uh, by the engines. So right. you are actually pretty efficiently weightless uh, for that short period. But you, it's, it, you, it's preceded by and followed by high G level, which of course interrupts what you observe during the COG phase. Yes. But the flu shift is so acute that you get a... I, I am convinced you will get a clear-cut, very good understanding of the degree of shift, hmm. even within those twenty things. So that's what we've been doing. We, we did it about three weeks ago. Okay. And uh, that study is very expensive, but data is <laughs> coming out right now. Did you fly on it or no? No, I did not fly on it. Oh, I have okay. been flying in fair body flights quite a lot in my previous life. <laughs> really? Previous life is before you come to the United States, right? So, <laughs> so, but I also tried in the United States a couple of times. So, be, be, I, I, I don't get sick, so that's why it's, it's fun for me to do that. And it's one of the great experiences of my life that is to doing parabolic flights. <laughs> Wait, you don't, you don't get sick at all? Not doing parabolic flights, but I get oh. seasick. Oh, you get seasick. Okay. He must be a master of roller coasters then, for sure. Yeah, but I don't like them anymore. I liked them when I was young, but now <laughs> I'm too old for that. It, it, it's too bumpy, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, I, had, I did have the privilege to do a parabolic flight one time. And it was definitely the, one of the highlights of my entire life. We so did, you, uh, did you feel good? I did well. So we did thirty parabolic flights for, uh, and and I got a little shot to to kind of help me with my. Oh, you cheated. 
I did cheat. (laughs) (laughs) And even though I cheated, I still got a little bit sick because we did 30 parabolic flights of of microgravity. And then we did another one of lunar, another one of Mars. And of course, on the lunar, I really wanted to do lunar push-ups. So I went and I went down on the ground. I did a push-up, you know, push myself, clap like six times, came back to the ground. And I went up and down five, ten times or something like that. And that up and down motion with the change of gravity was enough to go. Then you you become sick. Yeah, I agree. Yes, yes. Keep your head still. That's a, in in yeah. particular, during the transitions, the transitions are the worst uh, uh, stimuli, stimuli for mm. inducing emotion sickness. Yeah. So keep your head still and straight uh, during the transition phases. That's an important thing, but it's very difficult. Are these uh, things that we actually tell astronauts whenever they're, yeah. they're transitioning, actually, just make sure, you know, look forward? Our specialist and lead scientist, Dr. Mil Reski and uh, Dr. Jacob Bloomberg from the Human Research Program are actually very good at this, and they can advise the astronauts, you know, how to not move the head during certain transitions of these and thereby uh, actually also doing some head movements in order to being adapted to the change. So that's that's uh-huh. another way of doing it. And and they have certain ideas about that. So they have a full-blown list of what the astronauts should and shouldn't do during transitions. But many of those ideas have to be confirmed by really solid scientific data. So that's what we are trying to obtain. Right. And that's, uh, that's that's what we're looking forward to with these right. um, these exercises, yes. right? To, yes. to sort of, yeah. Exercises uh, on top. A lot of small things like hit movements and how to do them, not do them. Uh, certain... Uh, uh, we, we have certain programs on, on, on laptops whereby they do certain... Uh, tests in order to stimulate the sensory motor system and the, and, and the moving of the eyes and things like that. So to understand mm-hmm. and actually mitigate uh, the effects of the uh, uh, transitions on the sensory motor system. So you might know a little bit more about this than, than maybe me, but I just went to an amusement park um, because I, I really like roller coasters. But I enjoy I them. You, I used to like them. <laughs> I still do. Uh, and I, I just always have. I can't do the spinny rides, though. Anything where you're spinning around is no, just not not for me. Um, but I am getting a little bit more sensitive to it, but I still enjoy them. So uh, I, I tried, and, and it kind of worked for me. It might have been a mental thing, but it was a wristband. And the wristband just sort of applied a little bit of pressure to the inside of your wrist. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that actually works, or am I, is it just a mental trick? That's the first time. Uh, not the first time you hear about it, but I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I don't know whether anyone has tested it, but I wouldn't be surprised because it doesn't really go against the basic science. It just has to be tested and documented. Uh, yeah. And if it has, we would like to see the data. But I haven't heard anything from our team that this is an efficient way of mitigating. Uh, hmm. But it might be. I don't know. Yeah, maybe I was just duped into buying uh, it. With age, you become more open to these kind of things because it turns out there's something to it. It's just sometimes these things also exaggerated, you know, for uh, commercial purposes. So so uh, you have to be careful, but you, we should test it and uh, systematically find... We are doing that already. Yeah. And our teams uh, are doing it. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, when we're, th- when we're thinking about altered gravity, we were talking about some of these... Um, uh, we were talking about some components, right? We we're talking about the uh, the balance. We're talking about fluid shifts. Uh, going back to that parabolic flight, one thing that I did want to mention was you were talking about uh, just you know getting these small small micro readings, uh, these data points during that few seconds of of uh, altered gravity. But you were talking about a lower lower body negative pressure. Is that what you're talking about? Well, that's what we are testing. Uh, we on the ground right now, but we are planning to test it in the flight. Uh, we have actually tested with the Russians the efficiency of moving fluid 
with lower body negative pressure from the upper part of the body to the lower part. So we've mm. been trying to see how efficient can we do that and how well does it work in microgravity. It has been done before also on Skylab, so it's not a new thing, mm. but we were looking into specific measures on the eye and the flu shift on the eye and brain and head, which hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. And we were looking into the efficiency of the lower body negative pressure effect and how much the body negative pressure you would need to use. Okay. That has been done as a preliminary first step then we are trying to develop a countermeasure, including LBNP. It's LBNP means lower, lower body, body negative pressure. It's yeah. an acronym, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and so we are using that lower body negative pressure as, as a mitigating uh, procedure, but we are defining how well it works. Okay. Is it... I'm imagining vacuum pants. Is it vacuum pants, or is it? Is it? Is you it, could call them vacuum device? pants. It, it, it's simply, it, uh, you know, you you create sub pressure around the lower part part of the body, that's the legs and the abdomen, mm. and that's sufficient to moving fluid inside the body from the head and heart downwards. But you have to be careful not to do too much because otherwise you kill the person. I mean, they will be all they'll faint and yeah, you don't want to drain their brain. Yeah, you can kill people this way. It's, wow. it's, it's, it's something you have to be careful. With. Wow. Okay. Yeah, but, no, but, there's a lot of but that is our main uh, intervention right now. Uh, I see, and that that's that's one of the one of those uh, things countermeasures that we talk about. Yeah, right? yeah. So let me, when I say main intervention, it doesn't mean it's being used operationally in flight, not for this purpose, but it's our main intervention in testing for the countermeasure. Yes, I see, I see. Okay. So what um, you know, this is this is one of the countermeasures. Why we we, we focus Possible. on uh, one of one of the candidate countermeasures, right? Now. <laughs> candidate countermeasures. Right. right. Yeah, because if it if you test it and it works, yeah, you want to you want to implement it into right. procedures. Yes. Um, and that's that's basically what we're trying to find out now. Is you look at what is happening and then right. you define what is happening. What is happening, and then we are developing countermeasures. We have very little time because of the you know, gateway uh, deep space missions schedule that has been defined from 2021, 22 mm. to 20, end of the 20s, uh, uh, going to deep space in the vicinity of the moon. And so we have schedules as for deliverables from the program. Mm -hmm. And this is one of them. And that's why we have sped it up. And uh, the, the, we have to, because, other, so we, we are doing, ex at the same time as we are exploring the mechanisms for the vision change and the flu shift, we are at the same time parallel also trying to develop countermeasures. The countermeasures, And wow. combining those two and doing a ground-based study, ground-based analog study, and then the flight study. Okay. Yeah, because, yeah, that, that's a lot. We're in the middle on. of doing that right now. Okay. So that was that would be one of the things that we would test uh, in the lunar vicinity. Vicinity is based on what we know, right? We're still learning, but based yeah, on what we know, yeah. The problem in the lunar it. vicinity is that uh, these are short-term missions, so that's good. Yes, uh, we will look into the additional effects of these space missions, which is probably too short, four to five days. So it might take some time before we have data. We have need longer missions, but on the other hand, it's also difficult to have this big lower body negative pressure equipment in this small vehicle. Of Orion is much too small, the habitat is small. So we may have to find alternative mitigating strategies. Oh, wow. So on top of that, we are doing that. It will be possible in a transit vehicle probably to have a lower body negative pressure device. I, I think so. But we need to know alternative strategies as well. It may also fail during a mission, so mm -hmm. what do we then do? So we use bracelets, whereby you, you, you pump the bracelets up to a certain pressure in order to trap blood in the veins, in the legs, Ooh. and thereby putting it away from the heart. That's one efficient way of doing it without having a big equipment. Right. It may be in combination with some lower body negative pressure. The lower body negative pressure could be mobile, combined, 
bind with some uh, cuffs. Uh, we can maybe add exercise in order to trap blood more efficient, f efficiently with the bras bracelets uh, and or, or the cuffs, which bracelets are the same as cuffs. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these kind of things are being considered right now. Yeah. So, so looking looking ahead, we'll, we'll just sort of wrap up with this. Um, looking ahead at some of the, based on what we know and some of the studies that we're looking forward to, uh, what are some of the, what are some of your things that you're most excited about when uh, when we're talking about missions going um, to the moon and Mars, some of the some of the ways to implement these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about our progress in this SANS fluid shift vision uh, mm -hmm. issue because we have had some breakthroughs recently. We have data from space showing that some very surprising results that what we thought would be a main problem in the fluid shift may not be. It may only be part of the problem, so that makes it maybe easier to solve if it's correct. And the other thing is that we have for the first time it looks like we have created a bed rest analog on the ground that can induce some of the sense symptoms that we have never done before. And thereby, we, therefore, we can use that analog, which is very strict bed rest. Um, we can use that analog maybe to test some of our countermeasures, and that makes it much more feasible for us to deliver it on time in the beginning of the trenches. So that's very, very exciting. Wow. So that's what I'm very excited about. And I'm also excited about some new uh, outcomes of the our. Uh, sister or brother elements, I don't know what to call uh, <laughs> whereby there are some very interesting outcomes of uh, the effect of the deep space radiation and, you know, yes. uh, uh, combining that with what we are doing looks very promising. So I think now I'm more, much more optimistic about deep space mission and hills than I were about a couple of years ago. Okay, wow. Well, Peter, thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing this uh, this broad aspect of, of altering gravity whenever we're traveling. It sounds, you know, w whenever you see a space movie, you know, people are going right up into space and adjusting, no problem. But there's a lot of considerations, and it seems like we're making great progress. So I appreciate you coming on and explaining this for us Well, today. thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Peter Norsk about altered gravity fields. So make sure you stick in, stick with us for one more of the five hazards of human spaceflight, hostile and closed environments. Uh, you can check out all five of the hazards of human spaceflight podcast episodes here on Houston. We have a podcast or you can go to nasa.gov slash HRP. We're releasing these together with some of their products uh, that go over videos and animations uh, that go more into depth about what we talked about here on today's podcast. Uh, otherwise, you can go to nasa.gov slash ISS to figure out the latest on what we're doing aboard the International Space Station, a lot of what we talked about uh, uh, on today's discussion. On social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can go to the International Space Station accounts or the NASA Johnson accounts and use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite, plat favorite platform uh, to submit an idea or, um, or a suggestion for an episode that we should do here on Houston We Have a Podcast. So this episode was recorded on June 25th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, Mel Whiting, Bill Pulaski, Judy Hayes, and Isidro Reyna. Thanks again to Peter Norse for coming on the show. We'll be back next week again with the final episode of the five hazards of human spaceflight. See you then.